Hello, I'm Chris Packham, and you're listening to Sustainer Babble. Hello, Dave. Hello, Ollie. Uh, golly, this is exciting, isn't it? Where it are we? It is. It is. Welcome to Sustainable, our weekly podcast about the environment and stuff. This week, coming to you live from the New Forest. Yes, and we are here to uh, interview a uh, lesser spotted, well, not particularly lesser spotted celebrity <laughs> in his natural habitat. We are here to meet one of our heroes. Who is it? It is a hero of mine and yours and everyone. It is Chris Packham, who you, many of you will know from the Weird Really Wild show, um, Spring Watch, Autumn Watch, and an all-round sort of commentator on um, ecology, on wildlife, um, on all sorts of exciting things that we like to talk about, and a brilliantly entertaining man. Yes, indeed. So we are just uh, just going to go in and see him now. Uh, as always, let's do the usual. We do work for environmental charities, but this is very much our own thing. Yeah, so... they can never get an interview with Chris Backer. <laughs> so <laughs> if you've got any problems at all with anything that happens in the next hour or so, uh, take it up with me or Ollie, or I suppose Chris Packham, but not with anyone else. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, we better get on with it. Let's do it. So we're here um, on a beautiful sunny day with Chris Packham. Um, hello, Chris. Hi, good afternoon. It is a beautiful sunny day. It is. Unexpected it is. after the last week. Yeah, I'm in my winter jumper. <laughs> yeah, and me, I've got my winter fleece on. I still can't trust the sunshine at this time of year. And two dogs. Uh, Itch and Scratch are here. I hope they won't be too noisy, but if they hear anything, there may be some um, some sharp yapping. <laughs> they act as, as guard dogs, although at 12 and a half, their hearing is beginning to fade which uh, lessens their uh, ability in that department, but enhances my ability to snatch some peace in between their outbursts. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for, for having us round. And we wanted to ask you about a lot of things. Um, I guess the, uh, the thing that first piqued our interest um, in talking to you was this idea of tradition and conservation mm. and how the two collide sometimes. Um, Clearly, there have been sort of errors in the environment movement and the conservation movement in the past where people have, have weighed in and largely from the West and tried to sort of impose cultural values on other people. Mm. Um, but I think that's become a bit more nuanced in recent times. And what's what's the most important thing from your point of view? Where, where do you think the debate is at? I think, that, um, I think that we are living in a different age. And I think that in the past, whilst we could afford to be entirely tolerant of traditions which may have been damaging, now we have to question how tolerant we should be of those. Because, you know, we're in a bad place. You know, let's think about the UK. We know from State of Nature report published a couple of years ago that most of our habitats are in decline. Significant numbers of our species are in decline. Um, 13% of those that are monitored are in danger of extinction. Since 1970, we've lost, had a net loss of around 50 million birds from the UK countryside. I mean, I could rattle off lots of statistics which point to these sorts of problems. So, I, again, I suppose you might argue that things were that might have been incidentally damaging. <coughs> oh, there we are. First outburst. Things that might have been incidentally damaging in even in my childhood throughout the 60s and 70s are now likely to be having a more detrimental impact. So it's time to reassess just how tolerant we should be of destructive practices. And it's not just here in the UK. Yesterday I was um, speaking to someone about 
some of the problems that uh, are faced in Western Greenland and Arctic Canada, where traditional Aboriginal whaling rights are still granted. The problem is that those are traditional rights, but the traditional methods of harvesting those animals are long gone. So they are being harvested from speedboats rather than skin kayaks. Mm. They're being shot with high-powered rifles and not tethered harpoons. So a great number of the narwhals, which are shot with the rifles, actually then sink to the bottom and are lost. Um, and we have photographic documentary evidence of this. So it's not just a problem we face in the UK, it's one which is occurring all over the world. Now, in, in the past, it may well have been that the populations of Narwhal could sustain that sort of uh, continual destruction. But of course, you know, with the changes in the climate, changes in ice, changes in all of the impacts that that has throughout the, the food chain, it's now likely that they, they can't. And both Narwhal and Beluga populations in Western Greenland are in critical decline. So adding, you know, Aboriginal hunting rights on top of that in this day and age, in the 20th century, is something which maybe we ought to question. In the UK, we have traditions, again, um, let's think of some of the obvious ones like fox hunting. Mm. Now, that might be argued that it's a cultural tradition. Mm. Um, and it certainly, um, I think, was invented here. I'm not entirely uh, sure about the history of fox hunting. But this is the 21st century again. And I think that a lot of the time we spend trying to communicate to the broader public that wildlife is something that we seek to protect and to revere and to value, that it offers us uh, both uh, health in our community in terms of the stability of that actual community. So that's in terms of ecology but also for our own well-being we know that people enjoy accessing green spaces and and encountering wildlife so i wonder whether again you know it's, it's quite difficult to uh, to reconcile the fact that we're asking people to help us to protect species in some places or some species in some places whilst over the fence something you know quite medieval is happening to another animal and I, I struggle to think why in the 21st century we should be chasing a wild animal around the UK countryside and then enjoying it being torn to pieces with dogs. And there were lots of other traditions, remember, we have got rid of. We've got rid of things which are, you know, far more, you know, things that people might consider far more serious. Um, capital punishment. We don't want capital punishment back, do we? And we don't want slavery back, and we don't want burning witches back. I mean, it depends how far back we want to go and how absurd we want to make those comparisons. But, you know, traditions have to be modified. Mm. That, that would be my argument. Mm. Not, not all of them. Um, but, you know, again, there are people who still practice fox hunting. Instead of using foxes as the, as the prey, they use humans. And, and humans dress up and they run around the countryside. And oh, I see the, what you mean, sorry. Yeah, they're, 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 they're not hunted to death, of course. Um, and and I'm, I hope that they pick a, a pretty fit human to run. And, and then these people follow the trail led by, you know, and this is yeah. not a, a trail or drag hunt, but this is a, a different type of thing altogether. Mm. So this seems to be a way whereby you might modify that tradition so you can still keep the, the basic structure of it. You know, you could still ride your horses, you could still have your pack of dogs, you could still dress in your red uh, coats and so on and so forth. But it, it wouldn't be destructive to wildlife any longer, um, and I just wonder, you know, how how long, how much longer we can afford these sorts of destructive things. And that's something I'm always keen to to, to debate. I mean, I I, 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 as much many other people like and enjoy some of our traditions, but they do need to be valid now, mm. and certainly not destructive any longer. Is there a um, 
happens? They're an inherent resistance to change at the root of all this. Do well, that's think... typical of human, the human species, isn't it? We are just resistant to change. Yeah. We don't like change. And we, and we certainly don't being, like being told to change, you know, as opposed to being asked to change. And I think that you were right in your introduction to point out that in the, in the past, conservation has become very, it was very heavy-handed. It would wade in and say, you're not doing this anymore. It's wrong. And, of course, that's a great way of getting people's backs up. Um, And then you meet fierce resistance and it can take a long time to overcome that. But you've got to try and get the balance right between asking people to do something and, you know, and and ensuring that they're receptive to those ideas or that they will engage with education um, and with you know, the, the severity of the problem. And there are other instances, uh, and we could come on to persecution of birds of prey. And here in the UK, there's no ambiguity about the fact that this is a crime. So mm. killing raptors in this country is a criminal offence, punishable by fines or even imprisonment, and yet it continues. Now, the problem is that throughout my lifetime, we've been doing our best to engage with and educate uh, the shooting fraternity as to the value of these birds. And and, and we've asked them to be tolerant of them. And we've tried to work with them to find ways of mitigating the damage that they do. And there's no, again, no ambiguity about that. These birds have the capacity to damage um, people's interests in in terms of game rearing and and so on and so forth. so we, we, we've asked them to, to engage and be educated and become tolerant of, of, of these creatures. They do cause damage. Mitigation might be required. But one thing's for sure. Um, we now face a situation where the persecution has gone on for so long, it's impacted negatively on some species populations. And I suppose, to a great extent, the conservationists have run out of patience. After all, we are only asking for the law to be implemented and, and, with, you know, and upheld. We're not asking, this is not a matter of opinion. There's nothing controversial about this. The law of the land, as it stands at the moment, is that it's a criminal act. So we're only asking them not to be criminals. What I don't understand about that particular problem is that there must be a large, well, there are, a large number of responsible shooters in the UK. Why don't they police their own? If I mm. was someone who went out and did a bit of rough shooting or, you know, I was having no or little negative impact on, on the environment, I'd be in my car, I'd be driving up to those areas where, say, hen harriers are being persecuted, I'd be banging on the door and saying, for goodness sake, get your act in order. You're spoiling it for everyone. You yeah. know, I don't understand that. That seems a bit strange. I think that, you know, when you think about, I don't know, parallel football in the 19... 19- I was just thinking of the, you know, exactly the same. 70s yeah. and 80s, they had the crowd violence problems. It was, it was, I stopped going to football after some hideous scenes at Chelsea in the late 70s, and I didn't go back to football for years. But the, you know, in order to sustain that industry, because it is an industry, football, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's, you know, as is, they will argue, say, the grouse shooting industry, but in order to, to, to make sure it was sustainable, they stamped on the violence, they sorted yeah. it out, they put in the seats, and it's now a family day out. No one uses bad language. Well, they, do, you, they do use bad language. Well, yeah. they do well, occasionally. At Brentford, they do. Brentford, okay. <laughs> but, I mean, I, occasionally they do. But, I mean, I, I sat in a part of the Southampton stand where if you used a four-letter word, a lot of people would scowl at you and tell you to be quiet yeah. because there were kids there and there were, you know, uh, and, and that was an unsuitable thing to do and 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 that's why i think football's prospered in this country because it's it's changed we didn't want the violence any longer football couldn't countenance the violence it was going to go bust so it's it sorted itself out it policed itself i mean obviously the police were involved but in in largely it was the 
the FA and the Premiership that did that work. And now they're stamping hard down on racism mm. and homophobia. Mm. And, and again, they haven't entirely overcome those issues yet, but they're trying to. So why don't the shooting fraternity, you know, stop those few that are causing so much damage to their reputation? Why don't they, you know, finally sort this lead shot thing out where, you know, they're continuing to use lead shot over wetlands when it's been changed in many parts of Europe, North America and elsewhere with no detriment to their, to their sport, in inverted commas? I don't, I don't get it. You touched on it um, a bit earlier and I, I just want to pick, pick up on it, this idea that we've reached a, a point where patience has run out and we work in um, our campaigning is, is largely on climate change and um, and fossil fuel use. And for years, there's been this argument that you've got to persuade the fossil fuel industry to be better. You've got to reach out to them, bring them into the fold, um, and that's the only way you're going to get change. And a lot of people are now saying, "Do you know what? That that isn't working. Forget it. Give that up isn't working. Yeah. Um, they are the problem. Fossil fuel industries are the problem." Mm. we've got to become more powerful than, than them. Yeah. And is the similar thing happening in conservation, do you think? Do you think that's where the focus is at now? Well, conservation is a slow-moving organism, isn't it? It does carry on with the same techniques, the same practices, the same objectives, even when they're failing. Look at tiger conservation. We've been, you know, we've been conserving the tiger all of my life. I remember Project Tiger in the, in, in the 70s, and the number of those animals has gone down and down. It's, it's diminishing more rapidly than ever before now due to the affluence of the Far East and the craving for tiger products. So, you know, it, I always say, you know, if tiger conservation were a FTSE 100 company, I wouldn't buy shares. The stock's going through the floor. So I think that one of the th- problems I have is that, you know, we have new ideas, we have new people, younger people with ambition, we have people who are prepared to take risks, um, and, and, but we're, we, the conservationists, are very slow to implement those. We're batting on losing wickets, and that, for me, is entirely untenable. It's obscene. You know, if something isn't working, change it until, it, until you find a method that does. And so I think when it comes to obvious losses, like, tiger poaching, rhino poaching, elephants, so on and so forth. You know, we've tried all sorts of things, education, we've tried burning ivory, we've tried this, that and the other. We have ecotourism working to protect them in some localised areas, all of those types of animal. Um, But um, ultimately, we're still losing. So why apply on, why carry on doing the same thing? We've got to do something different. And I think you're possibly right about that. I'm not so well versed with the fossil fuel industry. In fact, I am going to talk to them uh, at some stage next, this next month. I'm going up to Aberdeen to talk to a, a collective of people. Right. But I, yeah, but I intend to say something <laughs> quite different to them. And, and that is I intended to say, you do what you do, but, it, but very rapidly and, and possibly already you need us because we have a skill set which you don't have. You can find it, you can you know, mine it, you can pipe it, you can sell it and process it and so on and so forth. But, but when it makes a mess, you know, either directly spills or indirectly climate change, you know, you need us to help you out. We need to start, you know, you need to start realising that we've developed, all the time you've been developing technologies and abilities, we've been doing the same. And I think that in the past, we probably cow-towed to these people. You know, we were touching our forelocks and saying, oh, is there any chance we can do But it shouldn't be like that anymore. They should be coming to us and buying our skills at the proper price with a proper degree of respect. Because, you know, whilst we live in that time, whilst that the fossil fuels are going to still be exploited, we should be exploiting them in a way um, which is, you know, as sustainable as possible. 
But then, you know, here we were speaking at about, you know, three in the afternoon. I listened to the, the news at lunchtime and, you know, subsidies are being pulled out of solar. Yeah. Subsidies are being pulled out of wind. Um, fracking is being encouraged. It's another fossil fuel. So forget whatever economics and, 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 and everything else involved. It's, we're still going down that route. The quick fix is nuclear. That's on the agenda again, despite the fact that the reactor seems to be a ludicrously expensive, ill-conceived piece of contraption from China that is perhaps not the best one to choose. Um, you know, what, what on earth are we doing? We, we really know better than to pursue these sorts of things. At the moment, the energy policy seems to be in a complete shambles. And yet we, we keep setting these targets and then not meeting them and, or agreeing to set new targets and never devising them. Um, but I'm optimistic. I, 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 no, no, I know. I, no, I am. I, I know that sounded like a tirade of negativity. But, but the fact is that you and I are here having this conversation. Um, as I say, I'm no, I'm no expert in any of these fields. Um, but, you know, we do know for a fact that we, we have alternatives and we should be investing in developing those technologies. You know, we should be trying to improve the efficiency of solar, the transmission of energy, so much of which is lost in, in cables underground, so on and so forth. You mentioned a couple of things that I wanted to come back to, and that was the word economics and the word rhinos. Um, now, I was listening to a documentary the other day about the rhino hunters who, what's there, 5,000 black rhinos left mm. in the world, mm. who will weird. pay extraordinary amounts of money. I mean, for 300,000 US dollars or mm. something like that, for the right to hunt and kill one black rhino. And this is auctioned and, and thought over. Um, and the argument runs that that money is then used to keep the other 4,999 safe. Mm. So, uh, and, and these guys, you know, you obviously can question their motives. They're very passionate about that line of argument, as I suppose you would be. What do you think about that as a I'm sceptical. Firstly, I, I, the idea of killing an animal for pleasure, I, I, I struggle to, 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 um, to understand. To me, it's psychopathic behaviour. If you're killing things for pleasure, I'm not saying killing, I'm saying killing for pleasure. There's mm. a very clear distinction there. And the idea of clear, you know, killing a highly endangered animal, an animal which huge numbers of people across the planet are trying to conserve for pleasure, is frankly obscene. That's the way I, I see that. Now, I have to reconcile that with the fact that there is this argument that, that the, the monies that you pay to do so, which are extraordinarily large in the, in the, in the case of those sorts of um, trophies, um, it's alleged that those that the, those monies go into local community. They support that community. Uh, they support the conservation of both those species and others too. Um, but do they? Where's the where's the actual evidence? You know, where is the you know the where is the university or, or, or the academic study which has looked at the economics of that? You know, because I have I'm, I I spend a lot of time working in Africa and I, I you know in Namibia. In South Africa, both of which, you know, are into their trophy hunting big time. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of the money does go into the local community in, in most of these instances. Because, you know, the, the shooters arrive, uh, they travel to the game lodge. So, OK, there'll be a small number of people around that area who are growing food for them. You know, they'll be looking after the lodge. They'll be, um, you know, providing services there. Um, so that may provide a, a contribution. But... In the wider sense of things, I, I don't. I think the vast majority of the profit probably goes into the people who are rearing the rhinos, paying to fence them in, keeping the poachers out, which they would have to do, otherwise they'd lose their livelihood, um, so on and so forth. 
And it's the same in this country. I, you know, people say, oh, a huge number of people are involved in fox hunting. Well, how many people? And how much is that industry worth? And how much is it worth in, in, in context with the rest of the rural economy in terms of, you know, farming or uh, whatever it happens to be? Um, I'd, I'd really like to see some real data. Mm. That's, that's the thing. I think people bandy around the idea that that's the case. And, of course, in theory it could be. But I suppose in simple terms, you know, killing for conservation seems like a, an oxymoronic lie to me, mm. you know. And, and I need... I need to be convinced. So convince me, you know, commission some study which actually proves that that money is dissipating in, into communities and it is important. Prove to me that, you know, that, the, that the, the vast majority of people who are working in industries like that couldn't be re-employed. Because basically, if you're running, uh, if you're running a, a game farm in southern Africa and you've got rhino, surely you could be showing tourists the rhino rather than people who come to shoot them ecotourism is a is an extremely valuable um commodity around the world yeah. even in the uk we know that the seagulls in on rum are worth a couple of million in terms of people that go there to see them mm. and initially there was conflict there when the reintroduction started between sheep farmers and the eagles but the eagles contribute more to the economy a huge amount more than the than the value of the sheep that are reared there so is it time to switch? Is mm. it time to think that actually the resource is no longer sheep, it's actually eagles? Is that the resource? Can we, over a sensible period, change people's employment structure and strategy, rethink the economics so that you know places like that become dependent on their wildlife rather than their farmed animals? I mean, that would, be, that would seem to be... I mean, I can tell you one thing. Uh, a few years ago, a government report showed that in Wales, in excess of three hundred and fifty million pounds was given to sheep farmers in subsidies, but the profit that was returned was one hundred and fifty million so that 's you that's and I great. as taxpayers subsidizing an industry which is running at least one hundred percent losses mm. um, now again there 's people involved there's you know there 's people 's long-standing sheep families there's tradition there's culture i'm not saying that we should suddenly just do away with it in some draconian um you know totalitarian way but you've got to ask questions yeah. you know that's that if the, if the economics alone there suggests that we should ask questions is sheep farming in the 21st century in wales the best economic solution for the people who live and work in the rural community or do we retrain them and and gradually move towards a, a different system of utilizing that land so I'm not saying that we want to put all the sheep farmers out of work overnight and completely ban sheep farming. But, you know, I'm just saying surely those figures suggest we should discuss what we do in the future with regard to this industry and the alternatives that are, are there. How do you find that plays out in the kind of political arena? Because that strikes me as the kind of sensible, quite long discussion that you would need to have with people being level-headed that is incredibly difficult to achieve in kind of modern politics where everything is deliberately binary hmm. you're either trying to put the sheep farms out, the, out of business or you're trying to you know kill the planet and how do you find when you engage with politics do you engage with politics that mm, i do yeah of course we all do i think all the time which you know I, I i never engage on directly on political issues i mean i think a lot of the issues that i talk about i don't see as political i see them as 
conservation, ecology, uh, behavioural, um, but they become politicised the minute we would meet that binary reaction. I don't think there's any need. I mean, for me, you know, the badger cull is, is primarily not a political... It's become politicised, mm. but at the root, you know, my, the, the root thing, it's basically the science says it's not the best thing to do. Now, that doesn't... There's nothing to do with politics. That's just plain science. That's the understanding of badgers and TB. So, you know, but of course... You know, in choosing then what we do about it, the the issue is politicised, and and that's a great shame because, frankly, it didn't ought to be. We should be making our decisions based on the best evidence that we've got at the time, and I think that you know as we've already agreed that people are reluctant to change. Therefore, if we are sensible and pragmatic, we should become we, are, we should be tolerant of that. I don't think we're going to change that. It's, it's human nature. So going back to the sheep again, you know. That the, the, you know the government commissioned that study. That again, there's no ambigu- ambiguity about it. Those are the figures on the table. So you and I, as taxpayers, are subsidising an industry which is non-profitable and contributes less than one percent, I think, to the to the Welsh uh, rural economy. So, what? What's going on? That's the question. Well, what's going on is a lot of people have been doing something for a long time. I think that's you know that there's again you have to sympathise with that. But what about their kids? What do their kids want to be doing? You know, do they still want to be sheep wrecking the uplands so the water pours off and floods Gloucester? Or do they want to be involved in a reforestation programme where they can still do a bit of sheep farming where, you know, it's appropriate? But then people from the, you know, the South Wales valleys, conurbations all the way around there can go and access this and they can stay in B&Bs and you can charge them and you can sell your lamb at a premium price, i.e., you know, it becomes something very special, Mm. Welsh lamb, which it should be. And, and it becomes a signature dish which people go to eat. Um, you just change the way we're doing it, you know, and, and that's what we've, we've got to do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm all for creative dialogue to, to you know, to create change. And, and I'm not one for, you know, I prefer carrot than stick. I think that's the best way to go. One of the things... Chris, that we do on our podcast is get really cross about stuff. We don't seem to be able to help it. Uh, we look at all the state of the world and politicians being idiots and whatnot. I get really, we get annoyed, don't we? Really get anarchy. But, yeah. but I'm really struck by you. Don't you seem calm? How do you feel, how do you cope with stuff that clearly you feel very strongly and passionately about yourself? Do you get angry? What do you do with that anger? Where well, does it, of course, we all, we all get angry. But I learned long ago that the best thing to do with anger is to channel it into something creative. Um, there was a film in the 80s that came out, I think we had Bruce Willis in it, I can't remember what it was, but the, the catch line, because they all had catch line, you know, at that time, in space no one can hear you scream, that's one of my favourites, but mm. this one was um, don't get mad, get even, oh, yeah. you know, so I, I'm, I'm really thick skinned, you know, I, I, reside, I you know, retain the right to change my mind, I hope that I do change my mind, I want to be flexible in terms of my belief and... Uh, until the day I die. I'm, I'm happy to admit that I get things wrong. I, we don't all get things right, and I don't have all the answers. Mm. But what I do want to do is promote discussion for creative change. Um, so when I'm angry about things, I generally don't say very much because um, I think invariably, certainly in social situations, you say things you don't really mean in the heat of the moment, and that's not rational. And I think that in order to win any of the arguments that we want to, we have to be rational, and we have to base our... Um, our, uh, you know, our mantras on good, sound, solid science. Mm. You know, we have to have good data. That's what I'm saying. You know, if if people come to me and they say, 
you shouldn't oppose driven grouse shooting. It would have a negative impact on the economy of these areas. I, I, I want to say, OK, that's a reasonable argument. Potentially, that's a reasonable argument. Give me the figures. Show me how many people are employed. Show me where the money goes. Tell me what percentage that is in, in, the, in those communities. I want the data. I want to be able to make my decisions on good, solid data mm-hmm. because the data I'm going back at them with says that burning's bad news. It says that persecution of raptors is bad news. It says that draining's bad news. It says that the medication they give them is bad news. All of that, you know, so come back at me with something where, I, you know, you can... I, I could make a reasonable decision, and if, if you prove, and if those figures came back, and I sort of, and you know, and we all looked at them and thought, well, actually, they've got a point here, then I'd, 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 I'd change my mind. You know, I might be pain, I might be painful for me, but I'm, I'm a reasonable bloke, and I would change my mind. But there isn't that data, so I, I am a bit like that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an extreme pragmatist. It's like the badger cull, you know. If, if, the, if the scientists had looked into it and they had all agreed and concurred that it was the best way to combat TB then as much as I like badgers, I studied them for five years, as much as I think they necessarily play a role in the ecology of our, of our countryside, I would have to grip my teeth and say, OK, let's get on with it. You know, because I would base my decisions again on the science. But in that case, again, the science says it's not the best thing to do. And in Wales, where they've been vaccinating, the incidence of TB is going down. The economics, £7,000 a badger, it's cheaper to vaccinate. There were so many things we could go on and on. But unfortunately, as you pointed out, this has become a politicised issue when it shouldn't be. It should be a scientific issue. You, right earlier on in the interview, you were talking about maybe needing to find alternative ideas of what tradition is and sort of redefining, if you like, the stories that we tell about what it means to be British or what it means to be you know, living in a coastal community. So... One of the things that Badger Cole does tell you is that facts don't always win. So, what role do you see for sort of, you know, the, the sort facts of facts will win in the end? Fa- facts will win in the end. That's uh, that's what I hold. That's that's. I suppose if I hold any idealism at all, you know, and I try to 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 get away from being idealistic in every sense, I, I think that I still believe in a meritocracy. I've got to. I, I believe in that personally and and in and in a wider sense. And ultimately, if we keep gathering good, sound information, again today, just jumping back to the news, they have announced that the um, cod stocks in the North Sea seem to have recovered Mm. and they might be thinking about changing the quotas. So here we looked at a species which was in... They're not going to get back to the 70s and 80s. What what made me squirm on the news was when they said that that their peak populations were in the 70s and 80s. And I sort of thought, (laughs) you mean the 1780s or the 1680s, but certainly not the 1980s, obviously the... You know, when you read the, about cod populations in the past, there were vast numbers of these animals. Um, so that was a little bit um, disappointing to hear that inaccuracy. But nevertheless, look, you know, there have been quotas. There was a fisherman on, 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 and he said that throughout his life as a fisherman, it had all been negative. It had all been, you know, the quotas restricted, the net size change. Everything had been restrictive, restrictive, restrictive. This was the first time in his life that it had changed. And, 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 and I would say, great, have a beer on me, mate, because we measured the population, we came up with a method of management, through your um, you know, compliance we implemented that, and it's worked. The population's back up. So go out and catch a few more cod, if that's the case. And, I mean, Marine Conservation Society are saying, you know, don't go berserk, this is early days, but the signs are there that it's worked. 
So again, you know, here's a community, a very beleaguered community, the fishing fraternity. Throughout my life, that you know, there's been problems, the Cod War in the 70s, the problems with um, European fishing rights and so on and so forth. We've never supported our fishermen as much as we should have done. Um, successive governments have let them down. And then they've had all of this on top, all of the conservationists breathing down their necks about quotas and everything. But for the first time, here's some good news. And, I, you know, and my heart goes out to that community here, and I really do hope they have a beer tonight and, and they can, you know, don't go berserk, but they can <laughs> ca- catch a few more cod and, 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 and that they prosper from that mm. because that's what we want. We want that sort of cooperation between essentially scientists, in this case fish ecologists, and, um, and the fishing industry. So that's surely that's a win-win. How um, how resilient is nature? How resilient is it? Because I I get a bit terrified by the rate of species decline across any number of species, and um, in, in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of my parents and everyone else. But I also get consistently amazed by how quickly you know if you leave the field to just do its own thing or a building in, even if you just or a building, yeah, a building absolutely yeah. that nature can can bounce back and that's one of the things i cling on to that it, there is a point in in doing what we do because if we give nature a chance mm. it'll grab it it's is tremendous. that is nothing, that true? nothing wants to die does it i mean true? it's tremendous yeah of course yeah it's very very true um Life is extraordinarily tenacious. And if you think about it on the grand scale, we had the Permian, the Cambrian, the, you know, the Cretaceous extinctions. And in some of these, we lost 90% of all life on Earth. And then it bounced back. Prior to that, we lost all life on Earth and there's no trace of it because it melted. The surface of the planet melted. And life went back down into the core where it lived as some extraordinary bacteria in liquid sulfur or something insane. And then it came back to the surface. And life is, you know, life is a remarkable thing in, in, in its, its force. So no matter what damage we do to this planet, our species does at this point, you know, in terms of climate, overpopulation, whatever it happens to be, um, you could argue if you were in, in, a, in a really cold-hearted biological way that it really doesn't matter because something, you know, will come, will, will, will come back and life will prosper on this planet again. There's no doubt about that. We, we could fire off all the nuclear weapons. We could do all of that sort of stuff. It, it wouldn't matter. You know, in the short term, it would be disastrous. But... Within a few, you know, hundred thousand million years, whatever, hundred thousand to you know million millions of years, um, it would come back, and we'd have a tremendous diversity here again. There's no, there's, quite, there's no question about that. But you know, that doesn't help us in our conscience, does it? Mm. I mean, the fact is that what motivates me is not the idea that I, you know, I'm preserving or trying to preserve something for my grandchildren. I think that's a, a, a quite. A, I don't know, it's an, it's an argument you might want to have, but it's not one that I wield. Um, I'm doing it because I know better. I set my alarm to get up because I have a conscience and I know that we're not doing the best thing at the, at, at the right time. And that's what motivates me. And, I, you know, isn't that what mo- it motivates creative people? You know, we have remarkable um, intelligence, um, creative abilities. And if we don't... If we don't use those at this point to both protect ourselves and everything else that lives here then we're embarrassing ourselves that that's the key that's the key thing i don't want to be you know i'm already embarrassed i embarrass myself <laughs> you know, all the time i i don't like the idea of, of of losing a battle in my lifetime you know and at the moment i'm losing i'm losing big time you know i've mentioned the decline since i got into birds we've lost 50 million birds from the uk countryside you know, I can hear one robin singing. This, when I was a kid, this would have been a far noisier garden at this point. So I'm losing. 
and that again stimulates me to just to try harder and and certainly now when we've got a greater ability to achieve success in these fields then we should all be trying harder that's what motivates my frustration with the conservation movement because it's still using some techniques that it came up with in the 1970s that aren't working and and we should be changing those and trying trying new ones uh, ultimately as well i think that you know governments you know or governors of at every level are failing us at this point in time but it's because they're not educated it's because they don't understand mm. if they understood then unless they were congenitally evil and they're not all congenitally evil very obviously um a lot of them are, are you know try to be well-meaning public servants and again i'm talking from like you know local council through to obama or whatever um but they don't understand ecology and, and they don't understand, you know, the need to protect biodiversity. But they will. Because, again, when I was a kid, none of them understood climate change. But now they do. It's, it's, they, they, even if they're not experts, they understand the need to address this. Um, they don't understand the gravity of it because they're still making some dodgy decisions over energy policy and things like that. But they will. So we first sort of engaged with you on Twitter uh, about an episode in which we talked about pandas. Oh, cool. <laughs> and um, I think the phrase you used was um, an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Mm. Um, this argument that we're pouring an awful lot of effort into saving an, an admittedly very cute and um, charismatic species, but possibly not the most important thing to be doing. Is that a position you, you still hold? Is that Well, I'd hold it. I mean, I, t- I picked on the panda because it was a provocative thing to do. It was a high-profile, as you say, cute and cuddly animal, which does absorb a huge sum of money um, and, and, and whose conservation is really not working. I mean, only the Chinese can breed them naturally without AI. They've tried to release two back into the wild. They both died. The amount of habitat has significantly diminished. Those which survive in the wild are now living in marginal habitat where they're, they're struggling to survive. Basically, they're eating the wrong species of bamboo because they've been pushed up mountains because all the lowlands are now farmed. That's where they used to live. It's got everything going against it, and yet we still keep ploughing money into it. But the reason that I instigated that um, discussion um, was to say to conservation, it's time for an audit. We've only got a limited amount of money and a limited amount of time to spend it. Are we spending it as wisely as we could and should? So the panda, the panda became my whipping boy for a much broader con, uh, conversation. And I think, of course, the press got hold of it and said that I wanted to kill all the pandas. It's absolutely nonsense. I love all life. I like pandas as much as anything else. You know, I've never seen a wild panda. Probably won't. Um, but the, uh, you know, that, that, that doesn't matter. I, I have no desire to exterminate past, uh, pandas or be gleeful um, should they should they become extinct. It's utter nonsense. It's, it's tabloid bl- blather. But it is really important in, in this critical time that we don't waste our time, effort, effort, energy and money. And that was the purpose of, of raising the debate about the panda. And within the conservation movement, it was well understood and, and all over the world. People have, have, have embraced that and started asking questions about our conservation practices. So if I was able to contribute to that in some small way, or at least by kicking off a discussion, then um, I achieved what I wanted to do. Of course, some of the headlines don't reflect that, but, you know, again, you've got to be thick-skinned, I don't care. You stick your neck out, you're going to get your head cut off. That's the way it goes. And the right people understood the right message. Sometimes the public got the wrong message. doesn't matter. Just on that, I was going to ask you about the, OK, you've got in trouble with the Countryside Alliance, which, you know, 
is what it is. What I've been impressed by is the outpouring of support for you on the other side. So the petitions saying, you know, don't sack Chris Packham, not that I feel you're in much danger of being sacked. Does that, make, does that give you hope when you, you hear the outpouring of support on your Well, on not your personally. I'm very flattered by the personal thing. But what gives me hope is the fact that there are that number of people who share my views or broadly my views, you know, um, because that means that we are, you know, collectively uh, working in, you know, to the same ends. And, uh, and that's good because obviously weight of public support numbers of members of things like RSPB uh, count when it it comes to lobbying Um, so it's good to know that there are you know a lot of people who share my you know determination to make things better for wildlife that that's that's the the important thing of course the other thing is very flattering I'm very grateful that people show yes personal support for me but more importantly it was it was saying that you know we care too about these about these sorts of issues so yeah that's good but I mean again you know RSPB have got more more than a million members. Somewhere between eighty and eighty seven percent of the UK, uh, when last polled, were opposed to hunting with dogs in some form or another. It was about eighty percent fox hunting, eighty seven percent, I think it was, uh, uh, hunting hares with dogs. Um, so there is a groundswell of public support for these sorts of things, and um, which is why I'm I'm not an extremist. In fact, I was <laughs> representing the majority view, uh, it seems. So. Yeah, but I mean, again, you know, I, I, I'd rather not be in conflict with anyone. I'd rather be in creative dialogue with them. But the trouble is when, you know, when people are cornered, and certainly over issues of criminality, you know, when they're cornered and it's still going on, and, you know, they, sometimes they don't perhaps behave in the, in the most rational way. And again, we have to accept that's part of, part of human nature, you know. We did a special at Eurovision Song Contest time looking at music and the environment and why all songs about the environment are rubbish. Do you agree? And if you don't agree, what have we missed? Well, I suppose going back, you've got Joni Mitchell and, you know, they pulled down the trees and put up a parking lot. Rubbish. Rubbish. Um, <laughs> the, um, what else have we had? There's been a number, any number of sort of folk ditties written. Uh, they were rubbish. Unfortunately, Billy Bragg, who was one of our greatest, you know, songwriters i think when it came to you know english culture and protecting it um and and obviously politically he didn't write any environmental songs at all i think he mentioned you know atomic or nuclear submarines in one of them um, but only in passing so that was a bit of a shame the smiths of course well they wrote some brilliantly quintessential songs uh questioning values i suppose indirectly uh, and very english um but, but Morrissey wasn't into birding, was he, unfortunately? <laughs> a meat was murder. Meat was murder, that yeah, was something. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. There's quite a few bands that I know that are kind of into their wildlife. They're into birds, but they're not writing protest songs. Hmm. It's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. I think you need real guts, energy, and you know, determination, and, and you need to be angry, and you want to stand up and shout about it. But there are protest songs that I use... And my favourite is um, Shout Above the Noise by Penetration. So that's a mantra for life as opposed to protest. But, you know, unless you do shout above the noise, you're never going to make any progress. So I I play that pretty regularly. Loud. Very, very loud. (laughs) Um, Final question from me. You've you've had a long and uh, exciting career, I guess. Um, What's the bit so far that you're most proud of? What do you look back on with particular pride? 
I don't like any of it really, I suppose. I think I've just got to keep trying harder. I'm never satisfied by anything that I do in any in any form. Um, I think I could always do better. It's about trying to do better. And I suppose if I, if there's anything, it's it's that. I, I do get up every day thinking I'm going to write better today, I'm going to take better photographs, I'm going to find a better way of communicating, you know, on an issue or whatever it happens to be. But no, I, I don't... I don't measure any any sort of success in that in that sense. Maybe to put it a different way, what have you enjoyed most? What's the what's the project? Oh well, I, I'm, I, the most enjoyable aspect of my work is is meeting people who know more about a subject than I do, and then and then they tell me about it, and that's that's really exciting. I like meeting the animals. Everyone always thinks it's it's a thrill to travel, and it is indeed a tremendous privilege to travel and and, and meet things that I dare you know dare, didn't dare dream that I'd ever see for myself when I was a kid. You know when I was. And I was, you know, in my little house on the other side of town here. Um, and so that's amazing, you know, and that's self-gratifying and, and, and tremendously rewarding. I have to pinch myself constantly to think, my God, how did you end up here? You're actually looking at this and it's not in a, it's not in a book, you know, like it was when I was a kid. But what, what supplements and surpasses that is that I'm with someone who's been studying that animal and I say to them, what, what, when do they breed and how many eggs do they lay and what time of year and why do they do that? What's their strategy? And they tell me. And I learn, and that's the best thing. The best thing is always learning more things, and um, and also I kind of like I, I kind of like thinking I'm right about something and then I'm wrong, because that means I'm correcting myself, and that I always feel good about that too. I always like the fact that you know I was there's one thing uh, which I studied badgers, and it was always thought that they were earthworm specialist feeders, and I'd spent years telling people that they were earthworm specialist feeders, and I'd started work with a lady called Dawn Scott. Um, at Brighton University, she's been helping us with some projects on Springwatch, and she said to me, "Chris, they're not earthworm specialist feeders." I said, "Dawn, they are. We've been all through the work." Anyway, she produced a couple of papers and gave them to me, which suggested that they weren't. And I was tremendously thrilled by that. I think Dawn thought I was going to be perturbed and and upset, but in fact, that was a real thrill to think that I'd, I'd you know, that uh, you know, we, because I was basing my uh, my assumptions on published information, that we, but we had it wrong. It's been updated. That's brilliant, and and I like that. And then again, within you know, personal life, I always like it when I think of one piece of music's pants, and then my stepdaughter says, "Listen to it again. Listen to this." And then I think, "Oh, actually, it's not quite so bad." So I like I like learning new things, and I like I like people having change. You know, I like I like to be able to change my mind once in a while. Chris Beckham, thank you very much for talking to you're us. Most, you're most welcome. I'm really sorry about the poodles yapping there. They were. Um, look, look at them now. Of course, they're both asleep. They're lying. I'll describe, describe the scene uh, as we sit here, just to end this little interview. It's a lovely sunny afternoon, and um, I'm lucky enough to rent a house in the New Forest where it's normally relatively quiet. This afternoon, the farmer's been active with his tractor, which has prompted some barking by the poodles, who are now prostrate on a freshly mown <laughs> part of a lawn that, that isn't given over to wildflowers. And they're basking in the late summer sun. And it's quite a charming sight, actually. I like to see a happy dog, a happy, fluffy poodle on the lawn. Because it's laying on the freshly mown grass. It's going to go indoors in a minute and shake it all over my floor. <laughs> which means that the OCD Hoover will have to come out. So that is just about it for this week. And I'm still a bit in awe of, of the lovely time I can we just smell had. your awe <laughs> no that's different uh, of the lovely time we just had with the lovely Chris Packham um, a personal hero of mine and now even more so 
BFFs. Us and Chris back at BFFs. Best <laughs> friends forever. Um, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or at SoundCloud. Search for Sustainable. If you enjoyed the show, you want to get in touch, find out more about us, you can go to our Facebook page, look for Sustainable. Find us on Twitter at the Babble Wagon or our website sustainable.fish and you can drop us an email at hello at sustainable.fish Is that everything? Nearly, yeah. nearly. You haven't quite said thank you as ever to the wonderful Dickie Moore and his band Bearcraft who play us in and play us out and do the twiddly bits. I wonder if Chris would like Bearcraft. We didn't ask him. No, he likes bears. <laughs> and he likes craft. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So probably would. Match made in heaven. Indeed. But otherwise that is just about it. We will see you next week. Indeed so. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Come here. What is the matter with you this afternoon? They must know. They've got some sort of psychic sense. They see a microphone and they begin to misbehave. <laughs> Barking at nothing. Absolutely nothing. Flies. Midges. Something like that.